Chapter Fourteen of They Call Me Carpenter by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Fourteen. Carpenter turned to me, and those sad but ever-changing eyes were flashing. You have taken a great liberty. There wasn't any time to argue. I said, if you knew what I know about the police of Western City and their manners, you wouldn't want to monkey with them mary backed me up earnestly they'd have mashed your face mr carpenter my face he repeated is not a man more than his face you should have heard the shout of t s vat ain't i shust offered you five hundred dollars a week for dat face and you want to go get it smashed and for a lot of lousy bums that won't work for honest wages and won't let nobody else work honest to god mr carpenter i tell you some stories about strikes vat we had on our own lot you wouldn't spoil your face on such lousy sons of guns sh abby don't use such language you should to be shamed of yourself it was maw guardian of the proprieties who had been extracted from the car by the footman and helped to the table well mr carpenter he don't know about dem fellers is like sit down abby commanded the old lady we ain't ordered no stump speeches for our dinner we seated ourselves and carpenter turned his dark eyes on me i observe that you have many different kinds of mobs in your city he remarked and the police do interfere with some of them my god cried t s you're gonna have a lot of bums jumping on people when they try to get to dinner said carpenter mr rosythe said that the police would not work unless they were paid may i ask who pays them to work here is it the proprietor of the restaurant well cried t s ain't he got to take care of his place as a matter of fact said i laughing from what i read in the times this morning i gather that an old friend of mr carpenter's has been paying in this case carpenter looked at me inquiringly mr algernon d wiggs president of the chamber of commerce issued a statement denouncing the way the police were letting mobs of strikers interfere with business and proposing that the chamber take steps to stop it you remember d wiggs and how we left him yes i remember said carpenter and we exchanged a smile over that trick we had played i could see t s prick forward his ears vat you know de viggs mr carpenter possesses an acquaintance with our best society which will astonish you when you realize it vy didn't you tell me dat demanded the other and i could complete the sentence for him somebody has offered him more money here the voice of maw was heard ain't they gonna get nothing to eat so for a time the problem of capital and labor was put to one side there were two waiters standing by very nervous because of the strike t s grabbed a card from one and read off a list of food which the raider wrote down maw who was learning the rudiments of etiquette handed her card to mary who gave her order and then maw gave hers and i gave mine and there was only carpenter left he was sitting his dark eyes roaming here and there about the dining-room Prince's, as you may know, is a gorgeous establishment. Too much so for my taste. It has almost as much gilded molding as if T.S. had designed it for a picture palace. In front of Carpenter's eyes sat a dame with a bare white back and a rope of big pearls about it and a tiara of diamonds on top. And beyond her were more dames and yet more and men in dinner coats putting food into red faces. You and I get used to such things, but I could understand that to a stranger it must be shocking to see so many people feeding so expensively what do you want to order mr carpenter demanded t s and i waited 
full of curiosity. What would this man choose to eat in a lobster palace? Carpenter took the card from his host and studied it. Apparently he had no difficulty in finding the most substantial part of the menu. I'll have prime ribs of beef, said he, and boiled mutton with caper sauce, and young spring turkey, and squab and casserole, and milk-fed guinea fowl. The waiter, of course, was obediently writing down each item, and plank steak with mushrooms and braised spare ribs. My God! broke in the host. And roast teal duck and lamb kidneys. For the love of Mike, Mr. Carpenter, you gonna eat all dat? No, of course not. Then what you gonna do with it? I'm going to take it to the hungry men outside. Well, sir, you'd have thought the world had stopped turning round, so still it was. The two waiters nearly dropped their order pads and their napkins. They did drop their jaws, and Mrs. T.S.'s permanent wave seemed about to go flat. Oh, hell, cried T.S. at last. You can't do it. I can't? You can order only what you're gonna eat. But then I don't want anything. I'm not hungry. But you can't sit here like a dummy, man. He turned to the waiter. You bring him the same what you bring me, understand? And get a move on, cause I'm starving. Fade out now. And the waiter turned and fled. End of chapter 14. Chapter 15. The proprietor of Eternal City wiped his perspiring forehead with his napkin and started rather hurriedly to make conversation. I understood that he wanted to enjoy his dinner and proposed to talk about something pleasant in the meantime. I want to tell you about this picture we're going to see took, Mr. Carpenter. I want you should see the scale we do things on when we got a big subject. You understand this is a feature we're making now, a night picture, a big mob scene. Mob scene? said Carpenter. You have so many mobs in this world of yours. Well, sure, said T.S. You gotta take this world the way you find it. You can't change human nature, you know. But this what you're gonna see tonight is only a play mob, you understand? That is what seems strangest of all to me, said the other, thoughtfully. You like mobs so well that you make imitation ones. Well, the people, they like to see crowds in a picture, and they like to see action. If you're gonna have a big picture, you gotta spend the money. Why not take this real mob that is outside the door? Ha, ha, ha! We, we couldn't work that very good, Mr. Carpenter. We gotta have it in the right set, and when you get a real mob it don't always do what you want exactly. Besides, you can't take night pictures unless you got your lights and everything. No, we gotta make our mobs to order. We got two thousand fellers hired. What Mr. Rosythe called studio bums? You have that many? Sure, we could get ten thousand if they said we'd hold them. This picture is called De Taylor Two Cities, and it's the French Revolution. It's about a feller but takes another feller's place and gets his head cut off. And say, there's a sob story in it, but's a wonder. When they brought me the scenario, I says, who's the author? They says, it's a guy named Charles Dickens. Dickens, says I. Well, I like his work. What's his address? And Lipsky, he says, says he, they tell me he stays in a place called Westminster Abbey in England. Well, says I. Send him a cablegram and find out what he'll take for an exclusive contract. So we sent a cablegram to Charles Dickens, Westminster Abbey, England, and we didn't get no answer and come to find out the boys in the studios were having a laugh on old Abbey, because this guy Dickens is some old-time feller, and the Abbey is where they got his bones. Well, they can have their fun. How the hell's a feller like me gonna get time to know about writers? Why, only twelve years ago Ma here and me was carrying pants in a pushcart for a livin' and we didn't know if a book was top-side up or bottom, ain't it, Ma? 
Maw certified that it was, though I thought not quite so eagerly as her husband. There were five little T.S.'s growing up, and bringing pressure to let the dead past stay buried in Westminster Abbey or wherever it might be. The waiter brought the dinner and spread it before us, and T.S. tucked his napkin under both ears and grabbed his knife in one hand and his fork in the other and took a long breath and said, "Goodbye, folks. See you later. And he went to work. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 For five minutes or so there was no sound but that of one man's food going in and going down. Then suddenly the man stopped with his knife and fork upright on the table in each hand and cried, "'Mr. Carpenter, you ain't eatin' nothin'. The stranger, who had apparently been in a daydream, came suddenly back to Prince's. He looked at the quantities of food spread about him. "'If you'd only let me take a little to those men outside,' he said it pleadingly. But T.S. tapped imperiously on the table with both his knife and fork together. "'Mr. Carpenter, eat your dinner. Eat it now, I say.' It was as if he were dealing with one of the five little T.S.'s. And Carpenter, strange as it may seem, obeyed. He picked up a bit of bread and began to nibble it, and T.S. went to work again. There was another five minutes of silence, and then the picture magnet stopped with a look of horror on his face. "'My God, he's crying!' Sure enough, there were two large tears trickling, one down each cheek of the stranger and dropping on the bread he was putting into his mouth. "'Look here, Mr. Carpenter,' protested T.S. "'Is it them strikers?' "'I'm sorry, you see. Now, honest man, why should you spoil your dinner for a bunch of damn lousy loafers?' "'Abby, what a way to talk at a dinner party,' broke in Ma. And then suddenly Mary Magna spoke. It was a strange thing, though I did not realize it until afterwards. Mary, the irrepressible, had hardly said one word since we left the beauty parlors. Mary, always the life of dinner parties, was sitting like a woman who had seen the ghost of a dead child, her eyes following Carpenter's, her mind evidently absorbed in probing his thoughts. Abby, said she, with sudden passion of a sort I'd never seen her display before, forget your grub for a moment. I have something to say. Here's a man with a heart full of love for other people while you and I are just trying to see what we can get out of them. A man who really has a religion, and you're trying to turn him into a movie doll. Try to get it through your skull, Abby. The great man's eyes were wide open. Holy smoke, Mary! What's got into you? And suddenly he almost shrieked. Lord, she's crying too! No, I'm not, declared Mary valiantly. But there were two drops on her cheeks, so big that she was forced to wipe them away. It's just a little shame, that's all. Here we sit with three times as much food before us as we can eat, and all over this city are poor devils with nothing to eat, and no homes to go to. Don't you know that's true, Abby? Don't you know it, Ma? Look a here, kid, said the maggot. You'll know what'll happen to you if you get to broodin' over things. You get your face full of wrinkles. You already gone and spoilt your makeup. Shucks, Abby, broke in Ma. What you gotta do with dat? Why don't you mind your own business? "'Mind my own business? My own business, you say? Well, I'd like to know what you call my business. But I got a contract to pay a girl thirty-five hundred dollars a week for her face, and she goes and gets it all wrinkles. I ask any jury, is it my business or ain't it? And if a feller wants to pull them tremulous stop for a lot of hobos and Bolsheviki, and goes and spills his tears into his soup—' It sounded fierce, but Mary apparently knew her Abby. Also she saw that Ma was starting to cry. There's no use trying to bluff me, Abby, 
you know as well as i do there are hungry people in this city and no fault of theirs you know too you eat twice what you ought to because i've heard the doctor tell you i'm not blaming you a bit more than i do myself me with two automobiles and a whole shop window on my back and suddenly she turned to carpenter what can we do he answered here men gorge themselves in russia they are eating their dead t s dropped his knife and fork and maw gave a gulp oh my god there are ten million people doomed to starve their children eat grass and their bellies swell up and their legs dwindle to broomsticks they stagger and fall into the ditches and other people tear their flesh and devour it oh wailed maw and the diners at prince's began to stare now look a here cried t s wildly i say dis ain't no decent way to behave at a party i say it ain't on de level to be a feller's guest and den jump on him and spoil his dinner see here mr carpenter i tell you vat i do you be good and eat your grub so it don't get wasted and i promise you tomorrow i go and hunt up strike headquarters and give dem a check for a thousand dollars and if de damn grafton leaders don't hog it dey all get something to eat and vat's more i send a check for five thousand to de russian relief now ain't that square what you say what i say is mr t s i cannot be the keeper of another man's conscience but i'll try to eat so as not to be rude and t s grunted and went back to his feeding and the stranger made a pretense of eating and we did the same End of chapter sixteen chapter seventeen it happens that i was brought up in a highly conscientious family to my dear mother and to her worthy sisters there is nothing in the world more painful than what they call a scene unless possibly it is what they call a situation and here we certainly had a scene and still had a situation so i sat racking my brains to think of something safe to talk about i recalled that t s had had pretty good success with his tale of two cities as a topic of conversation so i began mr carpenter the spectacle you are going to see this evening is rather remarkable from the artistic point of view one of the greatest scenic artists of paris has designed the set and the best judges consider it a real achievement a landmark in moving picture work tell me about it said carpenter and i was grateful for his tone of interest well i don't know how much you know about picture making you had better explain everything well mr t s has built a large set representing a street scene in paris over a century ago he has hired a thousand men two thousand broke in t s in the advertisements i suggested with a smile no no insisted the other two thousand really in the advertisement five thousand well said i these men wear costumes which t s has made for them and they pretend to be a mob they have been practicing all day and by now they know what to do there is a man with a megaphone shouting orders to them and enormous lights playing upon them so that men with cameras can take pictures of the scene it is very vivid and as a portrayal of history is truly educational and when it is done what becomes of the men utterly hopeless you see we were right back on the forbidden ground how do you mean i evaded i mean how do they live they get their five dollars ain't they it was t s of course yes but that won't last very long will it what is the cost of this dinner we are eating the magnet of the movies looked to the speaker and then burst into a laugh ha 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 that's a good one said i hastily mr t s means that there are cheaper eating-places to be found 
Well, said Carpenter, why don't we find one? It's no use, Billy. He thinks it's up to me to feed all the bums of the lot. Is that it, Mr. Carpenter? I can't say, Mr. T.S. I don't know how many there are, and I don't know how rich you are. Well, they get five million out of verts in this country now, and if I wanted to bust myself, I could feed em one day, maybe two. But when I got done, they wouldn't be nobody to make pictures, and somebody would have to feed old Abby, or maybe me and Ma could go back to carrying pants and a pushcart. If you think I wouldn't like to see all the hungry fed, you got me wrong, Mr. Carpenter. But what I learned is this. If you stop for all the misery you see in the world about you, you wouldn't get nowhere. Well, said Carpenter, what difference would that make? The proprietor of Eternal City really wanted to make out the processes of this abnormal mind. He wrinkled his brows and thought very hard over it. See here, Mr. Carpenter, he began at last, I think you got hold of the wrong feller. I'm a workin' man, the same as any mechanic on my lot. I've worked ever since I was a little boy, and if I eat too much now, maybe it's because I didn't get enough when I was little. And maybe I got more money than what I got a right to, but I know this. I ain't never had enough to do half what I want to. But there's plenty fellers got ten times what I got, and never done a stroke of work for it. Dare the ones you oughter get after. Said Carpenter, I would if I knew how. There's plenty of em right in this room, I bet. And Mary added, Ask Billy, he knows them all. You flatter me, Mary, I laughed. Ain't they some of em here? demanded T.S. Yes, that's true. There are some not far away who are developing a desire to meet Mr. Carpenter, unless I miss the signs. Where are they at? demanded T.S. I won't tell you that, I laughed, because you turn and stare into their faces. So he would, broke in Ma. How often I gotta tell you, Abby, you got no more manners than if you was a chimpanzee. All right, said the magnet, grinning good-naturedly. I'll keep a eatin' my dinner. Who is it? It's Mrs. Parmalee Stebbins, said I. She boasts a salon and has to have what are called lions, and she's been watching Mr. Carpenter out of the corner of her eye ever since he came into the room, trying to figure out whether he's a lion or only an actor. If his skin were a bit dark, she would be sure he was an eastern potentate. As it is, she's afraid he's of domestic origin, in which case he's vulgar. The company he keeps is against him, but still, Mrs. Stebbins has had my eye three times hoping I would give her a signal. I haven't given it, so she's about to leave. Well, she can go to hell, said T.S., keeping his promise to devote himself to his dinner. I offered Parmalee Stebbins a third share in the pride of passion for a hundred thousand dollars, and the damned fool turned me down, and the picture has made a million and a quarter already. Well, said I, he's probably paying for it by sitting up late to buy the city council on this new franchise grab of his and so he hasn't kept his date to dine with his expensive family at Prince's. Here is Miss Lucinda Stebbins. She's engaged to Babcock, millionaire sport and man about town, but he's taking part in a flying race over the Rocky Mountains tonight, and so Lucinda feels bored, and she knows the vaudeville show is going to be tiresome, but still she doesn't want to meet any freaks. She has just said to her mother that she can't see why a person in her mother's position can't be content to meet proper people but always has to be getting herself into the newspapers with some new sort of nut. "'My God, Billy!' cried Ma. "'You got a dictaphone on them people?' "'No, but I know the type so well I can tell by their looks. Lucinda is thinking about their big new palace on Grand Avenue, and she regards everyone outside her set as a burglar trying to break in. 
and then there's Bertie Stebbins, who's thinking about a new style of collar he saw advertised today, and how it would look on him, and what impression it would make on his newest girl. It was Mary who spoke now. I know that little toad. I've seen him dancing at the palace with Dorothy Doodles, or whatever her name is. Well, said I, Mrs. Stebbins runs the newer set, those who hunt sensations and make a splurge in the papers. It costs like smoke, of course. And suddenly I stopped. Look out, I whispered. Here she comes. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 I heard Ma catch her breath, and I heard Ma's husband give a grunt. Then I rose. How are you, Billy? gurgled a voice, one of those voices made especially for social occasions. Wretched boy, why do you never come to see us? I was coming tomorrow, I said, for who could prove otherwise? Mrs. Stebbins, permit me to introduce Mrs. Tisnickkilfrich. Charmed to meet you, I'm sure, said Mrs. Stebbins. I've heard my husband speak of your husband so often. How well you are looking, Mrs. She stopped, and Ma, knowing the terrors of her name, made haste to say something agreeable. Yes, ma'am, this country agrees with me fine. Since I come here I've rode in it, just rode in it. And Mr. T.S., said I. How de do? How de do, Mr. T.S.? Pretty good, ma'am, said T.S. He had been caught with his mouth full and was making desperate efforts to swallow. A singular thing is the power of class prestige. Here was Ma, a good woman, according to her own lights, who had worked hard all her life and had achieved a colossal and astounding success. She had everything in the world that money could buy. Her hair was done by the best hairdresser. Her gown had been designed by the best costumer. Her rings and bracelets selected by the best jeweler. And yet nothing was right. No power on earth could make it right, and Ma knew it and writhed the consciousness of it. And here was Mrs. Parmalee Stebbins, who had never done a useful thing in all her days, except you count the picking out of a rich husband. Yet Mrs. Stebbins was right, and Ma knew it, and in the presence of the other woman she was in an utter panic, literally quivering in every nerve. And here was old T.S., who, left to himself, might have really meant what he said, that Mrs. Stebbins could go to hell. But because he was married and loved his wife, he too trembled and gulped down his food. Mrs. Stebbins is one of those American matrons who do not allow marriage and motherhood to make vulgar physical impressions upon them. Her pale blue gown might have been worn by her daughter. Her cool gray eyes looked out through a face without a wrinkle from a soul without a care. She was a patroness of art and intellect, but never did she forget her fundamental duty, the enhancing of the prestige of a family name. When she was introduced to a screen actress, she was gracious, but did not forget the difference between an actress and a lady. When she was introduced to a strange man who did not wear trousers, she took it quite as an everyday matter, revealing no trace of vulgar human curiosity. There came Bertie, full-grown, but not yet out of the pimply stage, and still conscious of the clothes which he had taken such pains to get right. Bertie's sister remained in her seat, refusing naughtily to be compromised by her mother's vagaries. But Bertie had a purpose, and after I introduced him round, I saw what he wanted, Mary Magna. Bertie had a vision of himself as a sort of sporting prince in this movie world. His social position would make conquests easy. It was a sort of Christmas tree, all a-glitter with prizes. I was standing near and heard the beginning of their conversation. 
"'Oh, Miss Magna, I'm so pleased to meet you. I've heard so much about you from Miss Dulles.' "'Miss Dulles?' "'Yes, Dorothy Dulles.' "'I'm sorry. I don't think I ever heard of her.' "'What? Dorothy Dulles, the screen actress?' "'No, I can't place her.' "'But but she's a star.' "'Well, but you know, Mr. Stebbins, there are so many stars in the heavens, and not all of them are visible to the eye.' I turned to Bertie's mamma. She had discovered that Carpenter looked even more thrilling on a close view. He was not a stage figure, but a really grave and impressive personality, exactly the thing to thrill the ladies of the higher arts club at their monthly luncheon, and to reflect prestige upon his discoverer. So here she was, inviting the party to share her box at the theatre, and here was T.S. explaining that it couldn't be done. He had got to see his French Revolution pictures took. They had five thousand men hired to make a mob. I noted that Mrs. Stebbins received the advertising figures on the production. The upshot of it was that the great lady consented to forget her box at the theatre and run out to the studios to see the mob scenes for The Tale of Two Cities. T.S. hadn't quite finished his dinner, but he waved his hand and said it was nothing he wouldn't keep Mrs. Stebbins baiting. He beckoned the waiter and signed his magic name of the check with a five-dollar bill on top for a tip. Mrs. Stebbins collected her family and floated to the door and our party followed. I expected another scene with the mob, but I found that the street had been swept clear of everything but policemen and chauffeurs. I knew that this must have meant rough work on the part of the authorities, but I said nothing and hoped that Carpenter would not think of it. The Stebbins car drew up by the porte-cochere, and suddenly I discovered why the wife of the streetcar magnet was known as a social leader. "'Billy,' she said, "'you come in our car and bring Mr. Carpenter.' I have something to talk to you about. Just that easily, you see. She wanted something, so she asked for it. I took Carpenter by the arm and put him in. Bertie drove, the chauffeur sitting in the seat beside him. Beat you to it, called Bertie, with his invincible arrogance, and waved his hand to the picture magnet as we rolled away. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 As it happened, we made a poor start. Turning the corner into Broadway, we found ourselves caught in the jam of the theater traffic, and our car was brought to a halt in front of the Empire Varieties. If you have been on any Broadway between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, you can imagine the sight. The flaring electric signs, the pictures of the headline artists, the people waiting to buy tickets, and the crowds on the sidewalk pushing past. There was one additional feature, a crowd of rah-rah boys with yellow and purple flags in their hands, and the glory of battle in their eyes. As our car halted, the cheerleader gave a signal, and a hundred throats let out in unison. Rickety-zim, rickety-zam, brickety-stickety, slickety-zam, Wally-baloo, Billy-baloo, we are the boys for a hullabaloo, Western City. It sounded all the more deafening, because Bertie, in the front seat, had joined them. Hello, said I, we must have won the ball game. You bet we did, said Bertie, in his voice of bursting self-importance. "'Ball game?' asked Carpenter. "'Football,' said I. "'Western City played Union Tech today. Wonder what the score was.' The cheerleader seemed to take the words out of my mouth. Again the hundred voices roared. "'What was the score? Seventeen to four. Who got it in the neck? Union Tech. Who took the kitty? Western City!' Then more waving of flags and yells for our prize captain and our agile quarterback. "'Rah, rah, rah! Jerry Wilson!' Ra, 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 Harriman, 
Western City, Western City, Western City, Western City, Western City. You have heard college yells, no doubt, and can imagine the tempo of these cries, the cumulative rush of the spelled-out letters and the booming roar at the end. The voice of Bertie beat back from the windshield with devastating effect upon our ears, and then our car rolled on and the clamor died away, and I answered the questions of Carpenter. They are college boys. They have won a game with another college and are celebrating the victory. But, said the other, how do they manage to shout altogether that way? Oh, they've practiced that, of course. You mean they gather and practice making those noises? Surely. They make them in cold blood? I laughed. Well, the blood of youth is seldom entirely cold. They imagine the victory while they rehearse, no doubt. When Carpenter spoke again, it was half to himself. You make your children into mobs. You train them for it. It really isn't that bad, I replied. It's all in a good temper. It's their play. Yes, yes, but what is play but practice for reality? And how shall love be learned in savage war dances? They tell us we have a new generation of young people since the war a generation which thinks for itself and has its own way. I was an advocate of this idea in the abstract, but I must admit that I was startled by the concrete case which I now encountered. Bertie suddenly looked round from his place in the driver's seat. Say, he demanded in a grating voice, where was that guy raised? Bertie, dear, cried his mother, don't be rude. It's not being rude, replied the other. I just want to know where he got his nut ideas. Bertie, dear, cried his mother again and you knew that for eighteen or nineteen years she had been crying, Bertie, dear, in a tone in which rebuke was tempered by fatuous maternal admiration. And all the time Bertie had gone on doing what he pleased, knowing that in her secret heart his mother was smiling with admiration of his masterfulness, taking it as one more symptom of the greatness of the Stebbins line. I could see him in early childhood stamping on the floor and commanding his governess to bring him a handkerchief and throwing a shoe at her when she delayed. Presently it was Lucinda's turn. Lucinda, you understand, was in revolt against the social indignity which her mother had inflicted upon her. When Carpenter had entered the car she had looked at him once with a deliberate stare, then lifted her chin, ignoring my effort to introduce him to her. Since then she has sat silent, cold, and proud. But now she spoke. Mother, tell me, do we have to meet those horrid, fat old Jews again? Mrs. Stebbins wisely decided that this was not a good time to explore the soul of a possible eastern potentate. Instead, she elected to talk for a minute or two about a lawn feat she was planning to give next week for the benefit of the Polish relief. Poland is the world's bulwark against Bolshevism, she explained, and then added, Bertie, dear, are you driving recklessly? Bertie turned his head. Didn't you hear me tell that old sheeny I was going to beat him to it? But, Bertie, dear, this street is crowded. Well, let them look out for themselves. But a few seconds later it appeared as if the son and heir of the Stebbins family had decided to take his mother's advice. The car suddenly slowed up, so suddenly as to slide us out of our seats. There was a grinding of brakes and a bump of something under the wheels, then a wild stream from the sidewalk and a half-stifled cry from the chauffeur. Mrs. Stebbins gasped, "'Oh, my God!' and put her hands over her face, and Lucinda exclaimed in outraged irritation, "'Mamma!' Carpenter looked at me puzzled and asked, "'What is the matter?' End of chapter 19 Recording by Tom Weiss
tomsaudiobooks.com